Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Can you give us your top tips for optimizing heart health? Absolutely. I don't even know where to begin. I have so many. Um, how, how much time do we have? No, I think that <laughs> so, so in terms of optimizing heart health, I, I very much have a lifestyle first approach. So starting with a lot of the, the important lifestyle changes that we can make. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 212. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hi, veggie lovers. Welcome to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today, I have Dr. Nicole Harkin, who is a cardiologist and a lipidologist, meaning she is an expert on lipids and cholesterol and all of that. So you're going to love this episode because I know that my listeners always have a lot of questions about heart health and cholesterol and all of that. So we have some interesting discussions. Just to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace place careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, growth, any of those things, please consult a healthcare provider. So today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicole Harkin, who is a preventive cardiologist and is board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, echocardiography, nuclear cardiology, and clinical lipidology. Those are a lot of big words. After graduating from Boston University School of Medicine, she attended Columbia University for Internal Medicine Residency and New York University for Cardiology Fellowship. She is the founder of Whole Health Cardiology, a preventive telecardiology practice that provides cardiac optimization through precision and lifestyle medicine for patients in California, New York, and Florida. Passionate about preventing and treating heart disease through healthful, sustainable lifestyle changes, Dr. Harkin works with her patients to create a proactive, personalized cardiac care plan. She is also the chief medical advisor for Plate Up, a health tech startup dedicated to improving health through nutrition and is a member of Planted Forward, a comprehensive multi-specialty telemedicine health team. She proudly serves on several committees, including the American Society for Preventive Cardiology Nutrition Working Group and the American College of Cardiology California Chapter Prevention Committee. She currently lives with her family in San Francisco, California. When she's not doctoring, she spends the majority of her time with her three young children. She also enjoys cooking, yoga, pelotoning, hiking, and traveling. 
In this episode, we talk about her vegan plant-based journey, why she chose cardiology, what interested her in the heart, why we should all be more interested and knowledgeable about heart health, what are the most common conditions or types of patients she sees in her practice. And then we talk about her top tips for optimizing heart health, what she thinks are the easiest and the hardest for people to integrate. And then we spend a lot of time talking about common myths or misconceptions from other healthcare professionals and from the public. A lot of things about cholesterol. She also answers the question, is it possible to have too low of a cholesterol? That one comes up a lot. It's a great episode. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Veggie Lover, for coming back week after week after week. I appreciate you so much. And now let's welcome Dr. Nicole Harkin. Dr. Nicole Harkin, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. Well, let's get to it. I want to hear about your vegan and plant-based journey. What brought you here? It's kind of been an interesting route. I um, probably a little over a decade ago now, and I need to try to go through photos and figure out my exact date, but my younger sister, she's a veterinarian, um, and she had been vegetarian for uh, years and years and kind of had been planting the seeds. Um, And then actually for me, I ended up reading uh, a book. Uh, Jonathan Safran Foer wrote a book Mm. called Eating Animals, and it was very much a exploration into sort of the cultural implications of why we eat certain meat that we do, um, and then very much went through, uh, you know, factory farming and 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 those sorts of things. And um, just each chapter by chapter, it went through a different animal. I was like, okay, not eating that anymore. And and then that was that. And so for a number of years, I was vegetarian every now and then, you know, would eat some fish and things like that. Um, And then it wasn't until my cardiology residency where I started to really understand um, and have a, a better understanding of the implications of nutrition and cardiovascular health in in particular, and really started diving deep into that literature. Um, One of my mentors actually introduced me to Michelle McMacken, who's at NYU as well. Um, And she sort of really pointed me, here's your your 10 journal articles, start here. Um, And then it just kind of really uh, took off from there in terms of really learning and understanding uh, more about how what we eat really impacts um, heart health. Um, and so that's, that's when my plant-based journey began. And, um, and it's just amazing. It just really ties into um, not only, you know, animal rights, but environmental impacts and, and health impacts. Um, and mm-hmm. so kind of all three reasons sort of joined together, if you will. Yeah. So those are all values that you hold, it sounds like. So it made sense in your life. So how many years has it been now that you've been plant-based? I went plant-based um, towards the very end of my cardiology fellowship. And actually dairy, as I'm sure for many, is kind of was one of the last to go. Um, and uh, it actually, my now middle child, um, he, I was, uh, he developed a, um, it was actually difficult because it was a, a soy and kale milk intolerance and I was breastfeeding him, um, and he was just miserable. Um, and so that was really difficult cause I had to cut out soy as well, but, um, cut all of those out and that's when dairy, um, cut it out and, um, kind of really didn't go back, um, after that. So, so it's been about, and he's now he's four and a half. So yeah, about that many years. 
that happened to one of my friends too, kind of similar story. She was vegetarian and while she was breastfeeding her oldest son, he developed a, both dairy and soy sensitivity. And so that's when she made the transition too. So very similar story there. Once you cut it out, then you like realize like, oh, I can do this. Like there's, yes. there's some alternatives or I can just use avocado or, you know, whatever it is, all the things mm -hmm. that we, we now know, but, um, you know, I think it's so embedded in everything we eat and, um, and it's just, it, it, it definitely was, I think, you know, one of the more difficult things for, for myself. And then also I find for, for patients as well. Yeah, I agree that that's everybody's biggest fear is like, don't make me give up cheese, you know? <laughs> so, exactly. okay. So Let's back up and tell me how you became interested in cardiology as your specialty. I actually, interestingly, when I was in medical school um, and also early parts of my internal medicine residency, I was actually very committed to infectious disease. Interestingly enough, I was really interested in global health. I'd done uh, a number of different projects abroad, and really that was like my thing. I was so interested in it um, and uh, took one small rotation in medical school, uh, that, and it was kind of interested in cardiology, but then it really wasn't until, honestly, my interest medicine residency. I was at Columbia, which the, the cardiology program there is just phenomenal and started to really understand that while infectious diseases prior to the COVID epidemic um, were certainly impactful um, in terms of death and disability worldwide, actually cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death globally, um, men and women and in every country, basically. And so that was when um, kind of a, a light bulb went off for me in terms of, um, you know, what is, 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 could truly potentially have the most, most impact um, on, on a global scale. And, um, and certainly, um, you know, cardiology emerged. And then it didn't, it didn't hurt that it was just really fascinating. I, you know, the, the cardiovascular physiology is just really interesting to me. Um, and it was exciting and interesting. And, um, but, but really, it truly came from the fact that I just realized that I had uh, the most potential to really impact a, a lot of people that way. Yeah. Well, it's, good that you like it so much because that means that you picked the right thing, right? Like it's interesting. It's fascinating. Those are all words for somebody that likes what they do. So that's great. And then you said that you started to learn more about plant-based nutrition and residency and that one of your mentors connected you with another, another plant-based physician. Do you feel like it was something that was talked about in residency or was it still kind of like this isolated thing that just a few of the attendings maybe knew about it and talked about it? Yeah, great question. Um, I so actually how I really started being becoming interested in um, the the sort of impact that nutrition can ha have on the development of cardiovascular disease was um, so in fellowship. I actually I'd, I'd been interested in prevention. Prevention was always my thing. I was very very um, dedicated to the concept of you know yes we need to know all these things once people develop heart disease because we can't prevent it all but you know we really got to take a step back and and focus on um, you know modifying risk factors um, and helping people, you know, because it's a continuum, right? It's not just like one day you all of a sudden get cardiovascular disease. It happens over decades and decades and decades. And um, so, so I was very interested in prevention. I had take, I was taking the um, lipid boards. I wanted to be board certified in, in cholesterol disorders. And, um, and it wasn't until really PrediMed came out, um, which for your listeners who don't know is a 
one of the biggest uh, nutrition trials we have to date, randomized controlled trials, um, looking at the Mediterranean diet um, and its impact on uh, the prevention of cardiovascular disease um, and uh, individuals who didn't have cardiovascular disease. And the impact was profound. Um, and I remember presenting it for Journal Club and the, my cardiology with, to all of the cardiology, super smart, you know, cardiology attendings. And um, I remember one very well-respected attending at one point commenting, if this was a new drug, this would be, you know, explosive, right? And, um, and that's when it really, I, I started to really just want to understand more. And then that's when I started really delving in, into the literature and, um, and first saw a lot of the, the um, published information about, you know, plant-based diets and, you know, taking it further, what happens if it's not just a plant predominant diet, but a plant exclusive diet. And, um, so, so that's where, and then, and then it was self-study, um, unfortunately. So, um, you know, as I think probably still, I, I think there is still, there, there is definitely in the not last five years, increasing understanding of, um, and it's more embedded within the guidelines. And I think it is talked about more, but as we know, it's just still not a huge focus of most of our training. Um, and so, um, so I would say it's, it's, from my experience, a lot of it was, was learned afterwards or, or on my own. Yeah. In cardiology fellowship, do you feel that you got any training on how to counsel patients on diet, nutrition, or lifestyle habits? Very minimal. Um, I would, there was a couple, uh, my mentor gave one lecture to us that I recall, um, but it's certainly not a, a huge focus by any means. Um, and it's not that people don't want to know. Actually, my uh, fellowship project um, was I conducted a survey, uh, both internal medicine faculty and cardiology faculty, uh, residents and fellows. Um, and it was an anonymous survey. And I asked a series of sort of basic nutrition questions um, and then also kind of assess their attitudes and things like that. And um, it actually was surprising. They, it wasn't that they didn't know very much at all. You know, they obviously didn't know a ton, but they knew a, a decent amount. Um, but their confidence was not very high. And, um, and they felt like the biggest barrier was that they just didn't know how to do it. They didn't have time to do it, but that they wanted to do it. Um, and, um, and, you know, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and so, so I think that, um, you know, doc doctors get a bad rap because they're not, you know, providing this nutritional counseling. But I think if we really, truly gave them the tools and the time to do so, um, we could really make a difference. Yeah, I agree. I think the more time I've spent thinking about this, I feel it's exactly that. It's not because doctors don't want to, and it's not that doctors couldn't learn it. It's that they don't feel confident enough. It's kind of like doctors, I feel, were very much rule followers. And it's like, okay, we have this study that shows that this helps. Okay, I feel confident saying, let's try this. I recommend this. But if they don't know the data, they're not just going to say it because they don't, they're not sure. And they don't want to prescribe something or recommend something that may be harmful, especially when it comes to already having the assumption, which I think is very common, that people are not willing to change their diet and the lifestyle, which I think that's a very common um, belief among health professionals is like, well, you know, there's already going to be some resistance. If I mention this, people are going to be like, what, you know, what's wrong with you? How dare you mention that? And so I think there's already that feeling of I'm not, I don't feel super confident. If they ask me questions, I'm not necessarily going to know the answer to it. So I better not say anything at all. I feel like you're right about that. So it's cool that you did that study. 
Okay, why do you think that we should all be more interested and knowledgeable about heart health? Most importantly, as I mentioned previously, it is the number one cause of death globally and for all genders and um, ethnic groups. And I mean, you name it. Um, Most of us, unfortunately, will develop heart disease. And so added to the fact that it is not something, as I said, that just develops overnight, this is something that we know will reliably occur with um, extended exposure to risk factors. Um, Many of those risk factors, I think, are still emerging, but some of the ones that consistently um, come out throughout the literature that are are well known, you know, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoking, um, diabetes. So, and and so many of those um, can be uh, prevented or treated with uh, lifestyle changes. And so, um, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's really important to to start to realize that this is something that we all should be paying attention to. Um, and it's tempting, you know, in our 20s, we have so many other concerns or, you know, we're, we're young parents and there's so many other things going on. And, and, I, and I totally get that. Um, but, uh, but this is the type of stuff that, that we, need to start, we need to start talking about cardiovascular prevention, not when we're in our 50s and our 60s. We need to be talking about in our 20s and our 30s. Um, and it's, it's really difficult to, to, to sort of understand it because it feels so like something that only happens to old people and all this stuff. But one, I'm here to tell you, it does not only happen to old people. I have many, many young patients in my practice. And um, two, it's something that will happen when you are older and if, if you're not taking steps to sort of uh, address it early on. And the more we can establish these habits within our families and then those units, uh, the better. Uh, because we've done, I mean, we have lots of data to show now at this point that cardiovascular risk factors in childhood increase risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. We also have studies that show that young people who die of other causes, there's very famous studies um, looking at World War, uh, Vietnam War vets, and these young men in their 20s, when they did autopsies, had early signs of heart disease already. Um, And so so this is stuff that that is important to talk about when we're young so that we can do more um, to to prevent it over the years. Yeah, and that was before children were consuming 70% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. So it's only getting, like the standard American diet and the standard American culture is atherogenic, right? So it's like you deliberately have to do something different than just be immersed in this culture and do what everybody else is doing if you're hoping to have a different outcome than we're having, right? Because the lifestyle we have now is producing this outcome of very high cardiovascular disease. It made me think when you were talking about how we feel invincible when we're in our teens and 20s, it's like so true because, you know, I'm in my 40s now, my husband and I are in our 40s and uh, he used to never put on sunblock. He's very fair skin, redhead. And I would always be telling him, put on sunblock, you know, you're gonna get skin cancer, all this stuff. And now that we're in our 40s, he wears so much sunblock that it like stays on for days. He can't even like, cause we, we use the mineral based and you know, we do the boring stuff like wash our face and brush our teeth. And I wear a night guard at night and I'm getting to the point where it's like, if I don't wear my night guard, I don't sleep well. And I'm like, dang, 
you suddenly just get to that age where your habits are so important because it makes you feel good and you realize that it's, you know, you're getting to that age where if you're not sustaining those habits, you're really gonna regret it later, you know? But it's harder in your 20s because you do feel like invincible and you feel so good and you can do all kinds of things to abuse your body and you just bounce back, you know? That doesn't last forever listeners. So those of you in your 20, take advantage now and start the habits. Okay. What is the most common condition you see or treat in your practice? Because my practice is very much focused on prevention, I do tend to have slightly younger patients and a different patient population than sort of your typical cardiologist. So while I do have a large portion of of patients who have established cardiovascular disease and are are really looking to do everything they can to optimize their heart health and, and hopefully prevent further events, I do have a lot of younger people who have uh, risk factors for heart disease, uh, a lot of people with a strong family history of heart disease, uh, many people who are, say, 40 and their father had a heart attack at 50, and one day they're like, oh my goodness, that is not too far away from now. Uh, What should I be doing now? Um, And then also people with uh, cholesterol disorders, many of those are genetic also lifestyle-related, high blood pressure, things like that. Women who have had uh, preeclampsia or gestational diabetes in pregnancy, that's not a well-known risk factor, uh, but it is a risk factor for future cardiovascular disease. Uh, Individuals who have inflammatory conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, things like Mm -hmm. that. So uh, certainly have a a spectrum of of different types of people who are, are looking to just really make sure they're catching anything early on if it's there and doing whatever they can to, to, to prevent it. That's awesome. And really one of the things you said is that's what you like to do is optimize heart health and you're really big on prevention. I love that. So can you give us your top tips for optimizing heart health? Absolutely. I don't even know where to begin. I have so many. Um, how, how much time do we have? No, I think that... So, So in terms of optimizing heart health, I I very much have a lifestyle first approach. So starting with a lot of the the important lifestyle changes that we can make, um, what we eat obviously is a huge lever that we can pull. And so as much as we can consume unprocessed foods, hopefully mostly uh, whole foods that are plant-based. Um, really, you know, as, as I'm sure you are very familiar with, the literature is, is, is very supportive of uh, more and more plants um, for uh, the prevention of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we've got great data from everything from randomized controlled trials sh- showing that a portfolio diet, which is a very high fiber diet with low saturated fat, can decrease cholesterol. We see lower inflammation. I mean, all these amazing things to do. So certainly one of the first places I start with a lot of my patients is how can we incorporate uh, more plants and, and less processed foods. Uh, exercise is also incredibly important uh, for the prevention of cardiovascular disease. And it's, it's again, also very well documented that getting at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week is great for the prevention of, of cardiovascular disease, up to 300 minutes, actually, which is 
hard to hit, uh, particularly if you're a busy parent, uh, but is, is, is we continue to really see those benefits. So if you do are able to squeeze it in uh, and you enjoy it, that's great. Importantly, I think also with exercise that we sort of forget is that uh, trying to also lift weights, and that's actually a big change that I've made recently, is really trying to also get that resistance training, which we know is is great for, um, there's so, several studies that show sort of synergistic benefits in terms of cardiometabolic uh, risk factors, blood pressure, insulin resistance, body composition, those sorts of things. Also just trying to incorporate more movement in our day. So there's studies that demonstrate independently of how much exercise you're getting, how much you move your body throughout the day is also really important. And so, you know, taking, a, I've tried to do more t walking meetings and, and things like that to really, really mix it up and not always be sitting at my desk. So those are the two areas that I really focus on a lot. And then there's also things like stress management, um, which is increasingly becoming more, more important. And, and we're really realizing the sort of the mental health and heart health connection. So trying to work on chronic stress management um, is, is a, a really big uh, thing for many, many patients right now, certainly. Um, and then just really, I think the other big thing that I would urge is just making sure that you do take care of yourself and see a doctor. Um, many busy parents in particular, but everybody gets busy. Um, but I, I definitely see a lot of uh, parents in particular who are, you know, so on top of making sure their kids are at the pediatrician and all these things. And then they haven't seen a doctor in a really long time. And so making sure that you get screened for blood pressure issues, cholesterol issues, glucose issues, because these things are silent. You won't know that you have them until, and so they could be going on for a really long time. Uh, and so just, you know, periodically checking in and doing that. And trust me, I'm a terrible patient too. Um, but it's, but, but just, you know, finding time to just do those check-ins with a trusted healthcare professional is really important. Yeah. That's such a great point. I see that a lot in my office where, you know, I'm taking care of the kiddos, but the parents don't have doctors themselves. So we know they haven't been checked regularly by a physician. And I had Dr. Kim Williams on the podcast recently too. And that was his number one tip, know your blood pressure, because a lot of people don't know. And the body is amazing and it's so great at adapting, which is wonderful, but it means that sometimes you can get really used to feeling how you're feeling and not realize that how you're feeling is not necessarily that good. You know, your blood pressure could be elevated. You may have some blood sugar regulation issues. And so you don't know unless you actually check. And a lot of people may have never had that checked until, you know, they go in and it's really out of control. I love Bernie Wild's adventure sauce so much that I keep a bottle in my work fridge. For lunch, I usually take a grain bowl or a salad and it complements my combination of veggies, grains, and beans perfectly. I've gotten pretty adapted to adding a little spice to my food, but I don't want you to forget that spices are health promoting and the ingredients in this sauce add to your plant points. The first ingredient is actually carrots, but it also includes healthy gut microbiome supporting ingredients like onion and organic white miso. You can use a little or a lot, but I'm pretty sure one bottle won't be enough. The unique combination of ingredients in this sauce leads to a flavor you won't find in another sauce. It's got the spicy kick from the chipotle, but also tanginess and creaminess from the miso. You really just have to try it. Are you curious about this delicious sauce? It's called Bernie Wild's Adventure Sauce, and you have good reason to grab yourself a bottle or two right now. My listeners get 20% off their first order of $20 or more and free shipping. Just use the code Dr. Yami. 
D-R-Y-A-M-I. Follow the link in the show notes or go to BernieWilds.com. After you taste it, I wanna know what you think about this sauce. Do you love it as much as I do? Go get yourself a couple of bottles of Bernie Wells Adventure Sauce right now and get your 20% off and free shipping by using the code Dr. Yami. Enjoy. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Definitely, I think that the stress and the chron- the effect of chronic stress on our cardiovascular disease is something that I feel we're getting more and more evidence to show that that's a real thing, um, that whatever it's from, whether it's from work or whether it's systemic racism or weight bias and weight stigma, these are all things that can definitely affect your cardiovascular health as well. What do you think are the easiest ones that people are able to start integrating the easiest habits? And where do you feel that people struggle? That's a great question. Clearly, it varies from person to person in terms of what are their individual barriers, whether it's time or um, money or all the other competing interests that we have. But I think that um, actually, interestingly, I find that the message about red meat has really gotten across to, I think, the general public for the most part. And so most people, even if they aren't even plant curious, they're just trying, you know, they're really not interested in going completely plant-based. They're actively have or are cutting down on red meat. And so I think most people find that fairly easy to do um, and to substitute it with with other things, whether it's um, the the mock meats that are on the market or just, you know, a different protein source. I think people, that message has gotten out there and people will find that not that challenging. I don't have many people that are like, oh, I really miss, you know, my steaks or something like that. So I think in terms of cutting down some of the, the meat products people are very receptive to and find not so challenging. I think that for many of my patients, a lot of the other challenges come from finding the time to exercise consistently if that is uh, if they don't have like a set time that they do it or you know they wake up with the kids and then the this and the that and so so really trying to fit that into the schedule I find because um, it's a lot of time and and I find that kind of a, a big challenge and so we work do a lot of different we creative ways to try to help people fit that into their schedule. But just like any habit, once you sort of sit down and prioritize it, problem solve when you're going to do it consistently, tie it to another habit so that you're used to doing it um, and and start slow, you know, with a goal of whatever it is, two days a week and work your way up or however it is, and then have an accountability partner. People are able to kind of make it happen, um, especially even if it seems daunting at first. But I find that that's the big one right now, because I think time is one of our biggest, um, our biggest enemies right now. It's busy, busy, busy people. We have so many things that we want to be doing. And that's a hard one, I think. Yeah, it's a precious resource. A rare commodity is to feel like you have plenty of time, especially when you have young kids. And at the end of the day, you feel exhausted and you're like, how can I even think about exercising or adding this in? 
Well, I'd love to know what you feel is a common myth or misconception that either the general public have or even healthcare professionals have about cardiovascular health. And I would think if it is health professionals, maybe people outside of the cardiology field. Yeah. So I think that there is still a misconception that uh, if you're cholesterol is okay, you're, you won't develop heart disease, or if your blood, blood pressure is okay, it's impossible to develop heart disease. And so I think it's important to realize that it's not just one isolated risk factor. We are a, a lot of things, right? And so, uh, so there, and, and, and with that comes some of the mis- misperceptions around what is a bad cholesterol number. Um, probably actually one of the, the biggest misconceptions is that HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol is protective. And so if that's high, it doesn't matter what your LDL cholesterol is. Um, so that's another big one, I think, uh, which is, is, is very, very pervasive um, because there's this ongoing thought that HDL cholesterol, um, while epidemiologic studies uh, early on did support the notion that if your HDL cholesterol was elevated, you had a lower risk of heart attack. And that is true. We have since learned a lot more about HDL, and we've realized that raising it artificially does not reduce uh, cardiovascular events. And then, in fact, there is such thing as way too high of an HDL cholesterol, and it becomes no longer protective. And so, uh, so sort of simplifying that ratio um, definitely does a disservice to patients in terms of their true cardiovascular risk. It's much more about the HDL functionality, which unfortunately at this point we can't measure clinically. So I think there's a lot of, uh, I think risk and what what contributes to cardiovascular risk is still poorly understood by sort of the general medical field and then also by, by patients, right? And so I, I have a lot of people coming in that, for instance, think that because their HDL is high, it's fine, or because uh, their blood pressure is fine, it's okay that their LDL cholesterol is fine, or, or any number of different things. And so I have seen heart attacks at every cholesterol number, at every blood pressure number, at every body weight, at every, you know, it, it, so it's, it's kind of all of these things together and how they interact and what's the inflammation like and all of these different things. And so it's really, it's really complex. And so we just have to be careful not to take sort of one risk factor in isolation. Um, it's kind of how they all interplay together. Yeah. Well, one of the ones that I have been hearing increasingly at an alarming rate, especially with the advent of keto and these carnivore diets, (laughs) is that cholesterol doesn't matter. Like I flat out heard health professionals say, we know now that cholesterol doesn't matter. Like flat out say it that way. And that's very confusing to the public. Because then there's people saying like, well, my cholesterol doesn't matter. And I'm like, well, yeah, it does. <laughs> so why, why is that happening? Why is there so much confusion about cholesterol and what it actually means for our cardiovascular risk, even among health professionals? Yeah, it, it's really interesting how you see, you, you definitely see a lot of sort of dissonance about in terms of how does cholesterol impact cardiovascular risk? What raises cholesterol, right? Because there's that twin misconception that saturated fat doesn't actually raise LDL cholesterol, that dietary cholesterol doesn't affect your LDL cholesterol at all. And then in turn, that LDL cholesterol does not increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, And that is just patently false. I think perhaps there may be some extrapolation from 
from some of the data that does show that LDL cholesterol isn't the whole picture. As I said, I have seen heart attacks in, in people with an LDL cholesterol that I would have looked at and be like, oh, that's not that bad. That looks pretty good. Um, but their inflammation was out of control or their blood pressure, or they just had you know, really high LP little A or strong family history. I mean, exactly. There's all these other things that go along with it. And so do we miss people who does LDL cholesterol tell the whole story? No, but it unequivocally increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and is, is the most atherogenic particle we have that deposits cholesterol into those arteries. And so um, the more you can, can control it, uh, the better. The other myth that I've heard that really rubs me the wrong way <laughs> is I've heard dietitians, especially when they're counseling parents about children, that children must eat cholesterol because your brain is made of cholesterol and that's where it comes from. It's from your food. And uh, so talk a little bit about this one. So it is true that we need cholesterol in our bodies. They are important parts of our cell membranes. However, our body makes what we need. Uh, and so we don't need to consume dietary cholesterol in order to have cell membranes. Um, so I'm not, again, I don't know where that came from. Um, I, I think it's a, an impartial understanding of biology, I guess. Yeah. When I think about it, I think the confusion is that we have these essential fatty acids. Right. And maybe that got confused with cholesterol. And so then people are saying, well, you have to consume it in order to make enough. And, it, and you know, parents, we're scared. Like we want our kids to, you know, they're like literally parents are very afraid that something bad's going to happen to the brain. They can't even verbalize it. I've done these surveys and just talked to parents about what do you think is going to happen? They're like, I don't know. It's just something bad, <laughs> you know? And so if you tell parents bad things are going to happen to the brain, like they're super scared and they're like, okay, no, I'm not going to do anything that's going to affect my kids brain development. So if they need to have eggs and they need to have this, and it's, it's very dangerous for them to eat a plant-based diet, then I'm, I'm not going to do that. So yeah, that, that one is, I see that one definitely going around and that you have to consume cholesterol in order to have proper brain development. So I have a question that comes up every once in a while. I'm one of these patients. So my cholesterol actually gets really low. <laughs> so my total and my LDL goes really low. And some primary care doctors get really concerned about this. So I get this question a lot from listeners. It's like, my primary care doctor said this is dangerous, and but nobody knows exactly what will happen. So I want to know from you, you are a lipidologist. Tell me straight what you think about low cholesterol. Can it go too low with in a otherwise normal person that doesn't have some kind of weird, you know, genetic rare disease? on a plant-based diet, and if, it, if that's possible, what could happen? So the short answer is no. There's no such thing as too low of an LDL cholesterol. Uh, the slightly longer answer is that we now know from a wealth of different types of data that you can have an exceedingly low LDL cholesterol and have no untoward effects. Some of the concerns of having a low LDL cholesterol came from 
some earlier studies with a signal towards uh, potentially hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleeding in the brain with those who had pushed their LDL cholesterol uh, too low. We've subsequently not seen that relationship at all. Um, and one of the greatest sort of uh, data points that we now have are these massive randomized controlled trials of some of the newest cholesterol-lowering agents that are out there, the PCSK9 inhibitors. So these are injectable medications that dramatically, dramatically reduce LDL cholesterol. And so individuals that are on this um, because of genetically high cholesterol or, or they can't get their cholesterol down with, uh, with diet alone, um, they have established heart disease, um, the individuals that, that use these medications, they routinely get their LDL cholesterols down very, very low, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and uh, there's been zero signal of, of an increased risk of, of anything associated with these, uh, these cholesterol numbers. And so um, that in, in conjunction with genetic data that we have, so there's actually many individuals that have a, a genetic disorder in which their LDL cholesterol is basically non-existent and they have normal lifespan, there's no uh, increased health uh, morbidity or mortality implications in those individuals either. And so um, so pretty much every cardiologist I think I know is very comfortable with LDL cholesterol, like very, very low. And, and similarly in plant-based eaters, we see that in um, as well uh, in some plant-based eaters. And so um, so we think from from all the data that I have seen, I have, have no concerns with, with pushing the LDL cholesterol um, as, as low as possible. Awesome. Thank you so much for that answer. That was very comprehensive. All right. This yeah. is great. So I would love to know what you wish more people knew. What do I wish more people knew? I, I wish that more people knew that while genetics is incredibly important, um, it is not the whole story. And so I have a lot of people that come to me with a strong family history um, and they just it, it sometimes initially feel very defeated that um, this happened to my parents, so it's definitely going to happen to me. Um, and 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 while there are some genetic conditions like elevated LP little a that we can't modify with diet, there's lots of things that we can do with diet, right? And and so and exercise and all of these other sort of lifestyle things. Um, and and if all else fails, and it is a genetic thing that we can't modify with diet, we we do have other medications that are out there that weren't available when your parent um, was alive. And so, um, so definitely, I mean, we've all heard the the phrase about genetics uh, loading the gun and and whatever else, but but it's completely true. And and I really um, I want people to feel empowered that while cardiovascular disease is um, is certainly a um, you know really can feel daunting to um, feel like you you're gonna try to prevent this when a family member um, had you know a really uh, early heart attack. Uh, there are things that we can do um, to to work on this and help lower it. And so, um, you know, and, and so it's it's great when we can kind of reframe that conversation and have it be more about all of about, you know, taking this on all the things that you can be doing uh, to help to help prevent it. 
Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Yeah, I love that. And even if you end up being one of those few people that may still need medication despite doing all the lifestyle stuff, there's more reasons to do the lifestyle stuff. You know, it's not just about our heart health, which is super important, of course, but other metabolic conditions and our risk of cancer, but above all, well-being, because it just feels good. It feels good when your digestive system is working well and you're sleeping well and you have the energy and you have the positive endorphins from exercise. So there's multiple reasons. And I think sometimes you hear people, well, it doesn't matter, it's all genetic, so just eat whatever you want. Well, even if it was, there's reasons to choose habits and lifestyles that support well-being and longevity. And that's why I think sometimes it helps to talk about that because we have con- we have some control over how we may be able to feel and how long we may be able to live if we avoid accidents and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I think that's great. Thank you so much for that. Okay, I wanna know about your morning routine. Do you have one? If so, tell us what it is. I wish I had a better morning routine. Um, My morning routine typically, it depends on the day. Um, So now that I do, uh, I'm telemedicine based, um, I have a little bit more flexibility throughout my day. Um, But getting back to that exercise component, if I know it's not happening at some other point in the day, that's what happens first. And then, but it has to happen for the kids wake up or I wake them up at seven. So I either get like a little extra sleep because I know I'm doing that later or I get up and do that. And then it's, um, and then it's kid time and, uh, it can sometimes be crazy and hectic, but it is what it is. Um, uh, I try to fit in my meditation and those sorts of things in the evening, uh, just because I know that the mornings are crazy and I know it's simply a stage of life, but, um, we do the, the, the wake up and the breakfast together and, and then out the door. And I actually really, um, am really loving taking them to school right now. Um, it's been fun. It was not something that was, uh, an option for me previously. And so, uh, doing the school drop off and just, you know, trying to chat with them or just listen to music quietly together, um, on the, on the way to school has, has been nice. And then I start my, start my day, um, as a cardiologist. I love it. That's lovely. And you're a pillow maniac as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really do love my Peloton. Who's, who's your favorite instructor on the Peloton? So I'm pretty partial to Allie or Cody. If there is, if they, one of them, I, they're the OGs for me. Like they just, <laughs> they've been riding with them forever. And so I love them, but honestly, any of them, um, yeah. it just depends on, you know, music and the time and all that kind of stuff. But, um, those are my two favorite. And then actually recently, as I, I mentioned, I, um, have started to do a lot more weight training and that has been, I think one of the more, um, 
impactful changes in, in a while that I've just kind of noticed. Um, and um, so I've really been trying to, um, while I'm such a cardio junkie and I would love to just do a ride every single day, I had to force myself early on just to, to try to do some of the weightlifting classes, which you can get cardio with too. You can yeah. do some of the, you know, the combo stuff, which is great. And, uh, and I think that that's been a, a really good change in the last couple, I would say six months or so for me. Yeah, I'm the same. I had, I have to be really deliberate about my strength training because I would rather do cardio all day long. I used to run half marathons and marathons. I could do that hours, no problem. Make me lift weights and I'm like, do I have to? (laughs) (laughs) But it's good. It's made a big difference. And just like those other habits, once you get to my age, if you aren't deliberate about it, it's not happening. You just start losing that muscle mass and it takes longer to build it back up. When I was younger, I could literally do push-ups for a week and my triceps would put, like they would pop out. It was like, and I thought that was going to happen again when I started again I'm like where are my triceps and they're back now so now I'm just like very conscious about I can't quit because it's going to take so much longer to build it back up so it's very important absolutely okay so pretty similar what personal habit are you most proud of and why I think for me, um, it took me a while to get on the meditation bandwagon uh, just simply because I think as as I mentioned earlier, it was just like not realistic happen in the morning and then evening craziness and da, 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 da. And so I think, so I'm most proud that I actually am finally doing that. Um, so, and I, it's not long, it's usually 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but I use an, an app and I've been really proud of myself that I've been sticking with it. Um, because that was, that was something that I had always wanted to do and then I would do it and then I would stop. And, um, and so I kind of, again, tying it to, um, I, it's part of my bedtime routine now. And so again, tying it to something else that you're already doing, you know, you brush your teeth, you get your mouth guard, you're dead to that. And then it's meditation time. And, um, and so, um, so in a perfect world, would I do it in the morning to start my day? Yes. It's not realistic for my lifestyle. So you do something else. Right. Um, and so, so I'm glad that I've, I've started doing that more. Well, I bet it helps you sleep better though. Did you notice any differences in your, your sleeping when you started meditating at night? I think it probably has improved it a little bit. Although I, ever since having kids, I've been the lightest sleeper in the entire world. It is not that hard for me to go to sleep, but it, it I wake up all the time. Yeah. So that's actually my big sleep issue as I'm sure it is for many parents. But, uh, but yeah, I do think that it has improved sleep also probably, um, because it, got me off the device, um, which, you know, being really intentional about not having device time, um, for that hour or so before bed. And so trying again, uh, trying to be more intentional about reading a book and meditating and, and other things. And so certainly that, that, that helps sleep. I love it. And I love asking this of my guests because I want listeners to see that this is not just like, you know, just because we're experts and just because, you know, we talk about this stuff, it doesn't just mean it automatically happens for us. We also have to be deliberate. We also have to trial and error. And sometimes we fall off our habits, but we know that it's something that we value. And so then we get back on or try it a different way. And just like you're saying, your life changes. Like my kids are now 12 and 17. So I can have lots of morning time to myself when before I remember when they were little, as soon as they wake up, it's like a tornado just hit the house and you're not going to do anything for yourself. (laughs) Definitely no meditation. So I remember when I tried to, when they were little and I would just be more frustrated because as soon as I would start meditating, somebody would barge in or bang on the door and I'm like, Oh my God, this is not working. (laughs) So exactly. Exactly. No. And I think that's really important because too often people are so hard on themselves about these things and, 
And, and I think I find my role more often than not is not just cheerleader, but like reminding people, give yourself grace. It's like we, none of us are perfect. Even those of us who preach it, we, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen and it's not about being perfect. It's about being as consistent and doing your best as, as possible. And then if it's not working, modify it, figure out how to, how to switch it up and, and, and stuff. And so, uh, so, and we're all constantly, you know, learning and on our journeys and things change and, you know, so, um, so yeah, I think it's really important to, to be very open and honest about our challenges as well. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Harkin, this has been amazing. I would love for you to tell us where we can connect with you and what products and services you offer. Yeah. So I am a preventive cardiologist and I uh, provide telemedicine appointments to patients in California, New York, and Florida. Those are the states I'm licensed in. And so um, if you happen to live in one of those states and and you'd like to see a preventive cardiologist, I would be more than happy to be your doc. So you can find me on www.wholeheart.com cardiology.com. And then, um, otherwise I'm, I'm on Instagram, uh, off and on, um, but at Nicole Harkin MD. And I like to provide, uh, education about various cardiovascular topics, lots of stuff about nutrition and plant-based eating, but lots of other, uh, cardiovascular topics as well. Awesome. Okay. Last question. Leave us with your favorite number one tip for busy parents who want to optimize heart health for their children. I love that because as we've discussed, heart health starts early. Um, for me, I think one of the big, as once my kids started to get a little bit older, one of my favorite uh, healthy habits is to have them and enlist them to help cook. Um, and I think that my kids, as I'm sure you counsel your patients, my kids are so much more likely to eat things that they've helped prepare. And so it's just fun. So we've got the kids' knives, we got the little stool, and um, my four-year-old, if I let him, could like make a smoothie on his own at this point. Like he knows all the ingredients. Get the flaxseed, get the this. It's so cute. So, um, so we we really like cooking together. And um, I was really proud when one of when my kiddo came home um, one day and had one of the the cards for me or, and one of his favorite things to do with me is cook. And I thought that was really sweet. And so it is having an impact. He does enjoy it and, um, and it's fun. And then they can play around with food and if it's, you know, they can try stuff they wouldn't normally try. Maybe they like it, maybe they don't, but that's not the point. Right. Um, so that's fun. And I like that. And I think that it, um, it exposes kids to stuff early on and, and then it becomes, it's a family affair because I really do think that, heart health, cardiovascular prevention, just health in general is when it's centered around your family, it makes it so much easier to, to really, um, to take charge of it. Yes. That's so beautiful. And it's such an invaluable skill. Like I started deliberately having my kids cook on their own on Sundays. And one of the reasons I did is because my oldest one is going to be a senior in a day. (laughs) I can't believe it. And you know, he's going to be on his own and I want him to be able to make more than just like a microwave meal or whatever, not dissing microwave meals or anything, but just that I want him to be able to feel comfortable in a kitchen, to be able to have the skills to prepare a meal that feels good to him. And it's a gift for their future partners too. Like you can always tell their future partners, hey, 
I made sure that they learn how to cook. So thank me. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Well, Dr. Harkin, thank you so much for joining us on Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you for everything that you do. I love your passion and your energy. So thanks for coming on. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thanks so much for having me on. I loved it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Nicole Harkin. She's so eloquent, she's so knowledgeable and passionate, and I just love the work that she's doing. Here are my top takeaways. We should all be more interested in cardiovascular health because it's going to touch us all in our lives at some point, whether it touches us personally or a family member or a friend. So we should all be interested in cardiovascular health and in our own cardiovascular health. Nutrition, exercise, and stress reduction are some of the key pillars in optimizing your heart health. Number three, know your numbers. If you don't already know your blood pressure, if you don't know if you have an elevated fasting glucose, these are all things that you should see your doctor about. Get tested, know where you are, know where you are on the spectrum so that you can work on optimizing those numbers. Cholesterol does matter, despite what you may hear on the internet and from other influencers. Cholesterol really does matter, but it's a complex topic. It's not black or white. So be wary of people saying that it doesn't matter if your cholesterol gets elevated if you're eating a certain way. And then finally, if you're a whole food plant-based eater and your cholesterol numbers have dropped super low, don't stress about it. It's okay, it's not dangerous. And there are studies that show that nothing bad's going to happen to you. So those are some great takeaways from this discussion. I loved meeting and talking with Dr. Nicole Harkin. I hope you did too. And that you will reach out to her if you are interested in her services, if you are living in the state of California, Florida, or New York. Thank you so much for hanging with us, Veggie Lover. I hope that you have a very plantastic week. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.